All right, well, welcome here again, everyone. We are in, uh, this is our fourth, I don't know what you call it, fourth lecture, fourth time doing the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, this is our fourth time in, in lesson one of these fundamentals. Uh, remember the lessons that we're going to cover as we go through this. We kind of introduced it the first time, and then we talked about the the Bible, and we're still going to talk about the Bible more. Lesson two gets into how to um, how to know the Bible. Lesson three talks about God and His characteristics, attributes, then the person of Christ, then the work of Christ, salvation, and um, the other six lessons are are missing somehow. My my things having trouble again. Um, you guys got the memory verse down? So this is, remember we're memorizing 2 Timothy uh, 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now that's going to come up a little bit later and we're going to do it by memory, but I, you got lucky because I messed up here and pushed the wrong button first. But we're, we're talking here about kind of overview of the Bible, gen, general information on the Bible. And the things we want to kind of ask in this time is, how did we get the Bible? Uh, when was it written? We've kind of started to do that, talking about the dating of Scripture. What belongs in the Bible, the canon of Scripture? We're going to talk about that next time. How did the Bible get to us, the transmission of Scripture? We'll talk about that, I hope, next time as well. And uh, what's in the Bible, the overview of Scripture, we've kind of begun that and we're going to finish that. Last time we went through the Old Testament uh, to, today we're going to go through the New Testament. Uh, but remember the broad overview of Scripture, what, what's kind of just, just very broadly, big picture, what's going on. Genesis 1 and 2 was creation. Genesis chapter 3 was the fall of man into sin. And then from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, there was this promise of a Savior, promise of Messiah, promise of this um, son of Abraham, son of David, who is going to reign and rule and and do what God had originally designed for men. Remember, God told man at the beginning to rule and subdue the earth. And uh, of course, because of the fall, we couldn't do that. And then there's this promise of this coming king and savior who's going to make that happen. And then, of course, when we get into the New Testament, Matthew to the end of the, to, to Jude, I guess, we see the the savior the lord jesus christ has come to to conquer but he's going to come back again and uh restore the creation and so we see the restoration and so we see this kind of big picture creation fall promise redemption and restoration and that kind of gives us a big picture of what's happening in the bible um but remember we last time we went through the old testament today we'll and we'll try to do this fairly briefly What's going on in the New Testament? Again, it's that, it's the, it's the period where we see our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, in the book of Revelation, we see what's going to finally happen to uh, bring everything right. But the, the New Testament is divided into 27 books in our English Bibles. 27 books in, I think, all Bibles. Um, not like the, the Old Testament where we had different numbers of books depending on if we're looking at the Hebrew numbering or the English numbering. But 27 books in the New Testament, four of them are Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell the story of Jesus Christ. 
The history in the book of Acts is the next book in your Bible, and uh, that talks about the apostles, the what they did in planting the church. And then we have 21 letters to the churches, 13 written by Paul, Romans to Philemon, and then eight general letters written by, by various authors. We'll kind of look at that in a minute, uh, making 21 there, and then one book of prophecy, the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible. So 27 books in the New Testament. And, and while we kind of stop here, just remember, although I'm not always going to ask questions to make this super interactive, if you have questions that are, uh, that are like pretty applicable to where we're going or whatever, uh, you know, and, and I can always be the judge of that and, and uh, shut one down if I, if I'm not ready to answer it tonight. But, uh, if you have a question, just put your hand up and I'll try to, I'll try to catch you there. So, um, let's go through just kind of quickly what's what's going on in the New Testament. We've got these four Gospels, and each of them is kind of written from a little bit of a different perspective, uh, and, and even written to a different audience. And so the book of Matthew, and remember we've been doing these key words in each book. What's, what's Matthew all about? Matthew's about the king, and of course we've been going through Matthew verse by verse for a while. But Matthew is written more to... Um, more to the Jewish audience, and it's written really as a as, as a gospel that's really designed to teach. It's designed to teach the the believer uh, how to live their life in this world um, with the focus on Jesus as the King. And so it presents Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's long-awaited Messiah and royal King. And it was written to strengthen the faith of Jewish Christians and provide an apologetic tool for Jewish evangelism. So different of the Gospels kind of focus, some of them focus more on reaching the Jews, some of them focus more on reaching the Gentiles. And Matthew, in particular, he expects that you know your Old Testament very, very well. Uh, he he is going to give you a lot of information and teaching, whereas other Gospels are more kind of evangelistic focused. And so Matthew, written mostly towards the Jews, and and written for Jewish believers, um, but uh, of course applicable to everyone, written by Matthew, who is Levi, a uh, tax collector, probably written as early as 50 AD, and, and the dating of Matthew and Mark and Luke is, is fairly debated, uh, but I, I, would, I would take Matthew to be the earliest gospel written, although... Um, you know, most of the scholars would, would kind of think that Matthew relied on Luke, but we don't, we don't have to worry about those, uh, kind of unbelieving scholars too, too much, at least not here. So, um, Mark. Mark is written, uh, more for a Gentile audience. Mark's gonna explain the Jewish elements that, that he thinks his readers don't understand. The key word is servant, and, and Mark really presents Jesus as the servant of Israel, the, the one who is written about in Isaiah 53, right? My, behold, my servant. And you know, you guys know Isaiah 53, right? And so Mark really presents Jesus as the servant who came and, and preached and healed and taught. And Mark's just kind of like high paced, high action. It's, it's weird because it's, it's more of the, the gospel that's written kind of from an eyewitness perspective. Which is kind of funny because Matthew's your eyewitness. Mark wasn't there. Mark was saved later. Uh, Mark wasn't one of the twelve disciples, but Mark was really close with Peter, and so Mark has this kind of eyewitness account, really through Peter's eyes. And there, there, you're going to see a lot of things like colors and um, 
you know, the, the, what's going on on the lake and the wind and the, the, there's going to be more of this kind of an eyewitness feel as you go through the book of Mark, but mostly focused for Gentile believers, Roman believers, um, and it, it, moving very rapidly, just kind of like, it's just immediately, 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 immediately. And there's one section there where Mark gives like a whole day of what went on in Jesus's life. And it's like seven or eight chapters. And it's just like all of this happened in this one, this one day. And so Mark, Mark's kind of this eyewitness, um, gospel, um, written sometime in the mid fifties. I would, I would take it to be written after Matthew, but very dependent on, um, on Peter's kind of connection with Mark. Uh, gospel of Luke. Luke is, even though it's got less chapters, Luke is your longest gospel in the New Testament. Luke presents Jesus as the man, um, more so than, than maybe the other gospels. Uh, of course, Luke was Paul's companion. Luke went and did a whole bunch of research in order to kind of understand everything that the that had happened to the Lord. Um, Luke uses the term son of man quite often, 26 times. And of course, he's also the author of the book of Acts. So Luke was a Gentile and um, he wrote largely to a Gentile audience, but again, with a, a more focus like Matthew on teaching. And uh, again, the, as far as word count goes, Luke is your longest gospel and uh, if you ever have an assignment to read the book of Luke, you'll kind of catch that after a while. Some of these chapters are 70, 80 verses long and um, written a little bit later, around 60 AD, kind of giving Luke enough time to do the research that he did in order to write. And then the Gospel of John, the latest gospel written, keyword God, really shows Jesus as the Son of God, although all of them present Jesus as as God and his divinity, but but John really seems to focus on that focuses around the miracles that are, are designed to bring one to saving faith. And so he, he writes at the end of his gospel that it's written to, um, so that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you'd have life in his name. That's John twenty thirty one, And um, again, written to largely a, a Jewish audience for the purpose of evangelism so that they would believe in Christ. Uh, book of Acts is your next Bible, your next book in your Bible. Uh, the witness is the key word, and it focuses on really the history of uh, everything that happened with the apostles and the apostle Paul, and kind of brings us right up until the end, near the end of Paul's life, uh, written about uh, 60-62 AD after Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And uh, of course, I got a little note here. Note the we sections starting in Acts 16.1. Luke was a, a witness there, kind of on some of those missionary journeys with the Apostle Paul. Uh, so that's your book of Acts. Then we've got, now we're into the letters. These letters are written by Paul. Paul, of course, you can read about his conversion three times in the book of Acts. And um, these different different letters written to the churches uh, Romans is about righteousness. Lo- Romans is a great book that really clearly explains the gospel, and Paul's explaining the gospel to the people so that they can support his um, his wish to go to Spain and uh, be a missionary there. And so Paul's going to explain to the Romans his gospel in order that they would be encouraged and want to support him as he goes and uh, and hopes to kind of 
stop in at Rome and then go to Spain. But of course, Paul ends up getting to Rome by another way, which was by getting imprisoned. And, uh, and so his first Roman imprisonment, uh, he wrote this just before that in about 56 AD. Of course, the, that first imprisonment was like 61, 62, 60 to 62 AD. And so four years before Paul got arrested and went to Rome, um, he had written this book with these hopes of getting to Spain. First Corinthians, it, the word, key word is correction. And, uh, and actually, there's, there's really so many things going on in the Corinthian church, so many problems. And so Paul writes just this kind of letter in response. They had written to him and now he writes back to them. And uh, this book deals with disunity in the church, immorality in the church, marriage problems in the church. They're getting divorces. Then there's the whole question of liberty and food sacrifice to idols. And what are we going to do with that? And then chapter 11, there's all kinds of problems there with spiritual gifts and um, uh, and so chapters 11 to 14, he deals with all of those problems. And, uh, and then they, they're also, some of them are doubting the resurrection in chapter 15. And, uh, chapter 16 is kind of a concluding charge. But, but, you know, you think sometimes we say something like, well, we want to get back to the, the New Testament church. Well, sometimes the, the New Testament church wasn't, like, I'm thankful that we don't have disunity, immorality, marriage problems, uh, liberty, worship problems, spiritual gift problems, you know, but, um, but Paul, anyways, this letter is very helpful because it kind of preemptively for all church history deals with all of these problems. And so we have the God's word on how to deal with all of these things in first Corinthians. So Paul's answering specific questions that they had sent him. And that was written about 55. AD. Then more problems. Second Corinthians, the false teachers had come in and said they were just as good as Paul. And so Paul writes to defend his apostleship, confronts the false apostles, tells them to restore the guy who he had told to, to discipline in the previous letter to the Corinthians. Uh, and so very personal letter as Paul kind of tells the, the Corinthians that, that he is, um, really a great apostle and that they should kind of follow the word through him um, written about 55 56 shortly after second or first corinthians um, galatians is one of these books a great book about justification another defense letter paul's defending the doctrine of justification by faith alone apart from works and uh he's answering the 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 legalists who are trying to introduce circumcision into the gospel. And so great book, um, great book, Galatians written. There's, there's kind of debate about when this was written. And I've, I've got notes on some scholars think it was written in about 50 AD, just right after the Jerusalem council to the churches in Southern Galatia. Other scholars say it was written in about 56 AD to the churches in Northern Galatia. And uh, one day, I'm going to really want to study that, but I don't know the answer right now. Um, Book of Ephesians, we've talked about that. We've kind of spent some time in Ephesians, uh, really lays out the doctrine of salvation and uh, and then calls the church to live worthy of this great salvation, all of the riches and blessings and privileges that we have in Christ. This is one of what we call the imprisonment letters uh, written during... Paul's Roman imprisonment. 
And so 60 to 62, Paul was in his first Roman imprisonment and he wrote the book to the Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, and the book to Philemon. And so those are the prison epistles. Uh, Philippians, key word is joy. Paul describes his joy. He wants them to be encouraged. While he's in prison, he wants the, the Philippians to be encouraged. He wants to thank them for this gift that, he'd get, that they'd given him and uh, encourage them to just continue to joyfully serve the Lord despite their own difficulties that they're going through. Again, written in that imprisonment time about 61 A.D., Colossians, very similar to Ephesians. It's very likely that Paul wrote those two letters very close together and then had them go out, uh, maybe even about the same time. Uh, Colossians, though, is specifically to the church in Colossae because Epaphras had come and, and told Paul about some of the problems that were going on in the church in Colossae. Paul had never even been to that church. And, uh, and so, um, Paul writes to kind of correct the false teaching there, the legalism, asceticism, worship of angels, and some of these kind of pre-Gnostic um, false teachings were coming into the church, and so Paul writes to correct those. And um, anyways, that's the book of Colossians. Again, Roman imprisonment. Um, next book that we're, I, I don't know, I guess Philemon's going to come up later, but next book is First uh, Thessalonians, or maybe I just missed... No, it's coming up later here, right? Yeah, it's coming up at the end. Okay. Um, Thessalonians, one of the earliest books in the New Testament, uh, written during Paul's, written about 51, 52 AD to encourage this, this brand new church, very young church, maybe even only just a, a few, a few months that, that, that they had known the gospel. And, uh, and so a very early church, a very early book, and you ladies studied that last year, uh, written about 51, 52 AD. Then 2 Thessalonians, written not long after that, talking about comfort, to comfort the young church in the face of growing persecution, reminding them that the Lord will bring rep- retribution on those who are the source of their suffering, and to correct the false understanding and practice that had risen since his first letter, and so there was some misunderstanding amongst the Thessalonians about the return of Christ, and so Paul uh, tries to correct that for them in Second Thessalonians. Uh, first and Second Timothy and Titus, we call these the pastoral epistles. They really teach us uh, what the church should be, what the church is all about. And actually, and, and you ladies know this because you're studying this right now, but f- let's go... Uh, let's turn to a, a passage here, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul tells Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And First Timothy gives Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, kind of his, his young mentor in the faith, and uh, he tells Timothy how to set up the church in Ephesus. And so First Timothy really gives us this picture of what a biblical church should be, how one ought to behave, what, what we ought to do, what ought to be in the church. And the key word there is instructions. And Paul gives instructions to Timothy 
to kind of organize the church according to God's word. And so um, he's going to go in and he's going to establish elders. He's going to correct false teaching. He's going to talk about um, how the church members should function. He's going to talk about what to do if somebody's in sin. He's going to talk about the widows and this special ministry that the widows had. Uh, he's going to talk about, again, how how the elders ought to be, how the deacons ought to be, how slaves ought to behave in the church. He's going to give instructions to what he calls Timothy, the man of God. And so he's going to give instructions for, um, again, people like pastors and teachers in the church and what they ought to be. And so First Timothy, really a, a great book uh, to study and one that every church should should study well and carefully. Um, First Timothy, I'm going to guess, was written about 50, oh, 60 AD, okay, so um, after his first Roman imprisonment, and so sometime between 62 and 64 AD. And then Second Timothy, written shortly before Paul's um, execution, before his martyrdom, key word is finish, and Paul writes Second Timothy to give his final instructions to Timothy, exhortations before his death. He wants Timothy to persevere as a faithful man of God until the very end. Timothy was apparently a little bit timid, a little bit scared, a little bit shaken that his mentor was in prison. And, um, and so Paul encourages him and exhorts him to finish well and uh, to follow him in suffering persecution. And uh, written shortly before Paul's martyrdom, in about 67 A.D. during Paul's second Roman imprisonment. Uh, Book of Titus, another pastoral epistle written to Titus. Keyword conduct focuses on how the church should conduct themselves and uh, very similar to 1 Timothy in, in content, written about the same time, 62 to 64 uh, A.D. Uh, and then we got Philemon, keyword forgiveness, the book was written to request to Philemon to forgive and restore his runaway slave, Onesimus. And the epistle serves as a beautiful and practical model for Christian intercession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So that's a, a really interesting book. And so those are the 13 Pauline uh, epistles. We, we believe that they all were genuinely written by Paul. And uh, again, this one was written during that first imprisonment, 61-62 AD. So here's Paul's letters. We've got the what they call the capital epistles, Romans, Corinthians, uh, Galatians, kind of the, the main ones. We've got the prison epistles written 61-62, the church epistles written to the, the young church, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and then the pastoral epistles, 1st, uh, 2nd Timothy, and Titus written to kind of like pastors, um, apostolic associates, Timothy and Titus. Uh, and then here's a, and, and not, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there's kind of a chronological uh, list of Paul's letters, First and Second Thessalonians first, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians. Remember, Galatians could either go at the very beginning or right there where it is, um, depending if it's northern or southern Galatia where Paul went. Romans, then he wrote the prison epistles, then he wrote First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus uh, at that time. So now we go to the what, what they call the general letters, the book of Hebrews, keyword superiority, the superiority of Christ, 
and uh, how he's greater than the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic Promises, and that if you go back to those old ways, um, you're crucifying again the, the Son of God, and so there's no way going back. We have the the true thing in Christ, the, everything that the Old Testament pointed forward to, and so if you go back, you're really denying Christ, and uh, and that's a great sin. Uh, we're not sure who exactly wrote the book of Hebrews. The early church thought it was Paul. Um, that's been since kind of questioned, and, uh, and but it could have been Paul. Could have been other candidates, or Apollos, or Luke, or or some other believer. Some people even think Timothy wrote it, um, but uh, probably written just before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So probably written about sixty-seven to sixty-nine A.D. Probably written to believers in the the Roman area. Because in that area and in, at that time, if they would have went back from Christianity, if they would have denied Christianity and went back to Judaism, they wouldn't have been persecuted because that was a legal religion. Christianity was illegal. And so there's this temptation for the Hebrew believers to go back and be Jews again and kind of forget about this, this new Christian thing. And, uh, you know, if it was good enough for Moses, it's good enough for me kind of an idea. And so they're, they're trying to escape this persecution. And the author, I almost said Paul, but the author uh, writes them and says, you can't go back. You need to suffer. You need to persevere by faith. Uh, great book. Book of James, one of the earlier books in the New Testament, Faith Works, talks about how um, true saving faith, uh, true saving faith, changes our life and causes us to live for Christ, probably very much like the book of Matthew and all the things we've been learning in the book of Matthew. Um, that's the book of James, written by the half-brother of Jesus and uh, the brother of Jude, who was uh, one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church, and uh, he was martyred in 62 AD. So it was written very early, probably uh, sometime between 45 and 49 AD, making it the first book chronologically in the New Testament, uh, book of James. First Peter, written by Peter, keyword suffering, teaching the believers to suffer and how to submit their life to God in kind of every area, written by Peter. Second Peter as well, written by Peter, now to deal with false teaching that was coming up. Keyword, imposters. So these imposters, these false teachers are infiltrating the churches. And uh, Peter writes to encourage the believers to focus on Scripture and reject these false teachers, written about the same time that Paul was martyred by Nero, 67, 68 AD, to the, to the people in the same area where Paul had ministered. Uh, and then we got the, the last kind of books of the Bible of the New Testament. First John tests on how to know if you're a true believer, if you have fellowship with the apostles, a uh, very helpful book, kind of multiple tests as John kind of goes over and over again what it looks like to have eternal life and to be a true believer and to, to walk with Christ and be in the light and all of these synonyms that John uses to speak about what a true Christian is. Um, so that's First John, uh, written sometime around 90 to 95 AD. And uh, then we've got Second John, a short letter from John. Keyword necessities, and it's written to this elect lady to teach her about the necessity of truth and love as far as how do we determine 
who we can have biblical fellowship with, well, it's, it's according to truth and it's according to love. And uh, in particular, there's this focus on hospitality that was to be shown. Um, and, and it was not to be shown to these people who had rejected the apostolic teaching of, of Christ. And then third John, keyword hospitality here. And it's to encourage Gaius to continue to um, so really support these missionary brothers who are going out uh, to preach the word, but also there's, there's this warning in there about, against this prideful man, Diotrephes, who is, who is really kicking people out of the church uh, who belonged to the church. And so that's John's three letters, one, two, three, John. Uh, Jude kind of mirrors the book of Second uh, Peter, and it's in the same way that Peter did, Jude also felt kind of stirred up within him to teach against the false teaching that was going on in that day. And so Jude wants the believers to earnestly contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, um, written just shortly after Second Peter, about 68 to 70 AD. So uh, then finally, final book is Revelation Key word is the future revelation to encourage the churches and kind of let them know what's, what's going to happen in the future that Christ is going to reign and conquer. Written by the Apostle John, uh, probably the last book that he wrote uh, sometime about 95 AD. And it's the last book in our Bibles, the last book that was written. And, uh, and so that's kind of just a, a brief survey of, of what's in the New Testament. Uh, I remember I told you guys I, I do have kind of these these outline points. I have these keywords. If you ever want those, um, I would I'd be happy to send them to you. But I think again, just to kind of why do we do this? It's it's helpful for us when we get to a book just to know what it's all about, to know its purpose, and to kind of understand who's writing it, when they're writing it, why they're writing it, what they're trying to accomplish, and then as we go through line by line and, and interpret it. We want to tie it back to those purposes so that we can understand why is he saying this here versus saying something else, right? So we want to, we want to kind of understand, uh, what's going on. Um, any questions about the, I'm scared to get a question in this category, but any questions about the, the New Testament? Um, just before 70 AD, about 69 AD. Yes, about 67, he was martyred. So it, it could have been just right right before. That was right about the rise of the persecution. But yeah. Well, the early church thought he did. Um, I, I wouldn't, I'm not dogmatic about it at all. Uh, so, I, yeah. It, you know, let me just say this. If you If you read Hebrews in Greek... It is not like Paul's other letters, but it could be that he wrote a more, uh, it's, it's very much like reading the Septuagint. It's a, it's a harder, it's more like Luke's Greek, honestly, but, uh, but like, we don't know, uh, Luke didn't write enough that we could really be like, oh, that's Luke's writing style and people can write differently. And, and so, um, again, I'm, I'm dogmatic on some things, but I'm definitely not very dogmatic about that. So. But I would say this, it's written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through, 
you know, we don't know who wrote First and Second Samuel either. It doesn't doesn't really bother us that bad. Um, and so we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but definitely bears the marks of inspiration, which is where we're going now. Uh, is to let's talk a little bit about the inspiration of the Bible. And um, let me see here. To do that, I have some other notes here. So, but let's just kind of open this up for some discussion a little bit. What what is inspiration? What would you guys say? What what are we talking about? What do you think we mean when we say inspiration? Not not quite. I mean, the Bible is inspired. That's what what are we what are we talking about? You can you don't have to tell me the whole definition. This is why we ask questions like this. <laughs> so it's like, okay, you guys are going, why don't you tell me what it means? So let's, let's just, uh, what's that? Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alan says he'll, he, you tell me, Mike, and I'll tell you if you're right. So, okay, well, let's, uh, let's go about it that way then. What does inspiration mean? Um, this is from the FOF teacher's guide. I'm not sure if this would be in your books, but this is what it says. It says, inspiration is God overseeing and directing men to write his words. It is the process by which God, as the instigator, worked through human prophets without destroying their individual personalities and styles to produce divine authoritative writings. So um, there's a there's a lot in that definition, but... God is working in some way to to get the people who wrote the Bible um, to write words that he wanted. And yet, we can talk about things like how Luke, or the author of Hebrews, has a, a very unique and much more difficult Greek style than, say, somebody like John, who is kind of the, the beginner's Greek. John's kind of got this elementary Greek, but very deep teaching, First John, I'm thinking of in particular, um, or even the Gospel of John, very, very simple, straightforward, um, easy to translate Greek, whereas Book of Hebrews, Book of Luke, much more complicated, much more, um, much more structured, much more, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of more difficult words. And so, God is working through those different men, but ultimately he's producing his word. So let's talk a little bit about uh, inspiration. And, and let's think about this. And, and when we're doing this, we're really talking about the inspiration of the 66 books of the Bible written by the, the men that we talked about. Now we're going to look later and we're going to talk about the canon of the Bible. And we're going to talk about how do we know that these books are the books that are supposed to be in the Bible but the, the whole process of inspiration begins with the, the biblical writers. Um, the biblical writers. So, you know, we're talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're talking about Moses. We're talking about all of these different people. And for them to write scripture, there was, God was, had prepared them for this task, even in the, the places that they were born and even the, the influences that they had and the vocabulary that they learned, the education that they had. Remember, Moses was 
educated in Egypt. And so Moses would have been one of the few people at that time that would have known how to actually write. And so um, God put Moses in that position so that he would be able to write God's word. And so inspiration really begins with a preparation of these men. And, um, and that's, that's under God's sovereign providence. And so they were born in a, a unique time and place with a, a unique heredita- uh, heredity, like from, they came from certain parents with a certain education, certain interests. They, they learned their vocabulary and style, and then they were called into ministry. Um, B.B. Warfield says this, he says preparation was, quote, physical, intellectual, spiritual, which must have attended them throughout their whole lives, and indeed must have had its beginning in their remote ancestors, and the effect of which was to bring the right men to the right places at the right times, with the right endowments, impulses, acquirements, to write just the books which were designed for them." End quote. And so you really think about that. It's really amazing what God all put in to the biblical writers. And uh, even their research and writing was done under the supervision, and, and really we, we should say supernatural supervision of God. And so God first prepared these writers and, and called them into ministry and then um, gifted them in such a way that they could write his word. And so now let's talk about what they call the, the superintendence of the biblical writers. And what we mean by superintendence is that God carried these men along and, and, and directed them to write what they wrote. And to do that, I think we're going to go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Very important verse on scripture. 2 Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Starting even earlier than what's on the screen there, in verse 16, Peter, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's talking about this time when he was on the mountain with Christ and there was the transfiguration. Remember, Christ was transfigured before them and they saw his glory. And Peter's saying, I didn't make, we didn't make this up. We actually heard the voice of God speak from heaven when we were with him in that moment. And then he says in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now let me just, uh, let me read through the whole thing and then we'll kind of go through this bit by bit. But he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the first thing we, we come across here is this. And let me see if I can just kind of do these outlines here. Um, the first thing we come across is, is this here, this, the prophetic word more fully confirmed. 
Now, there's really two kind of views, and, and it, it really doesn't matter here, but, but one view of this is that, is, is just like the ESV translates it here, that the prophetic word is more fully confirmed. So, the, the question though is more fully than what? And the other way that, that we can take this is that, that what we actually have is the more sure prophetic word. And you would kind of see that. Some commentators take that view. The King James translates it that way. Uh, I'm not sure if what other translations go which way on this. But the idea here is that if it's making a comparison, Peter's saying that, that even more sure than this voice from heaven is the word of God, right? So you see that? Like more, even more than this voice that I heard from heaven and this eyewitness of Christ and his shining glory, even more sure than that is the word of God. But whatever he's saying there, he's, he's telling us in, in a way that there's something that either the word of God kind of confirms his experience on the mountain or, or that the word of God is better than his experience on the mountain. And whatever way we take that, what, what Peter's pointing us to, because though the, because we weren't there on the mountain, right? We weren't there, but, but Peter's saying, but we've got the word of God. And we do well to pay attention to the word of God because it's like a lamp shining in a dark place. And, uh, we, we are supposed to do this until, basically until we get to heaven, I think is what he means by the day dawning and the morning star rising in your hearts. But but why is this word more sure? Well, because we know something in verse 20. And what we know is that Scripture, the, the writing of Scripture, the Word of God, didn't come from somebody's own interpretation. And, and so what Peter's talking about here is the origin of the Word of God. And it's not from the men who wrote it. It's not from Peter. It's not from Paul. It's not from Moses. We're going to see in a minute that it's ultimately from God. And so it wasn't written by the prophet's own opinion. It wasn't from his own will. It was, it was a prophecy that, that comes really ultimately from God. And so it's, it, no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. Instead, and again, he says it even, maybe even more clearly here, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So whatever happened when a, a prophet prophesied and wrote down the words of scripture, it wasn't that person's interpretation, it wasn't that person's will, but men spoke, so we, we have men involved, but they spoke from God. And that's a, that's a really key word there. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Some translations say they were moved by the Holy Spirit, but literally it's to, it's to carry to bear. Now when, when these men were carried by the Holy Spirit, it's not as though they were, they dictated, uh, something. It's not as though like, you know, I, I've heard of this kind of like, uh, I forget what they call it though, when, when the, the, somebody kind of automatic writing, you you go blank and, and, um, kind of a satanic cultish practice. Um, it's not like that. It's not like God told them, now say this, now say this, now say this. Um, there's an element of mystery in, in this. You know, it, it's, it's these men who spoke, but what, when they spoke, it was ultimately from God and the Holy Spirit was working in this, in this process so that what they wrote is, 
God's word, but it's, it's from, it's from themselves. They, and they, and so they use their own vocabularies and their own styles, and those are all recognizable. Uh, in one place, in, um, in 1 Corinthians 2 or 3, Paul can't even remember how many people he baptized. And yet, the Holy Spirit carried him along to write perfectly that he couldn't remember how many people he baptized and if he baptized Crispus and oh yeah, then there was that other guy and I don't even know how many people who I baptized and, you know, and so the humanness is coming through, but ultimately scripture teaches us that, that it's, it's ultimately God who carried these people along. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the super intendance of the biblical writer that they were carried by the Holy Spirit and they prophesied, which means to speak forth the word of God. And so the, that's the superintendence of the biblical writers. And then what happens then is that the documents that they wrote and the words that they spoke when they prophesied are, are the word of God. Um, here's Charles Ryrie in his basic theology. He says, quote, God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. So we're talking about the inspiration of the documents. And and first of all here, we're talking about definition. What are we talking about when we're talking about inspiration? I already gave you that quote from FOF. Um, Here's how... Um, B.B. Warfield said, he says, inspiration is a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. Um, and I think I actually have a quote here, yeah, from, from William Nix and uh, Norm Geisler in their book, The uh, a General Introduction to the Bible, Page 39, it says, quote, inspiration is that mysterious process by which the divine causality worked through the human prophets without destroying their individual personalities and styles to produce divinely authoritative and inerrant writings. And so the Holy Spirit worked and caused these people to write what he wanted through their individual styles and personalities. That's what inspiration is. That's what we're talking about when we say that scripture is inspired. And actually, to, to, to see that from scripture, let's go to what we're going to call here the meaning of inspiration. And let's go to 2 Timothy 3.16. And I told you I wasn't going to put that on the screen because we're going to practice that. So let's try that. Ready? Everyone's ready to, to, to shake it up a little bit and talk a little bit. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, correction or reproof, reproof, somebody says, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Is that right? Did we get that right? Oh yeah, did I say inspired? All scripture is Breathe. I got all these multiple translations in my head. I'm just so mixed up, guys. Um, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So all scripture is 
breathed out by God. Let's talk about this. First of all, notice this word all here, all scripture. And so Paul is, is recognizing that all of the scripture, all the writings, and he doesn't mean all writings ever written in the world, but all that are recognized as scripture, these are breathed out by God. And, and that means that, that God has, has kind of spoken these, that again, that the source of scripture is God himself. And so it's breathed out by God. Every inspired scripture is, is profitable. Is kind of the idea here. Every inspired scripture is profitable, and uh, the word there, scripture, is just literally the word graphe. It means it means writings, and uh, it's specifically in in the New Testament scripture. It's talking about writings that have been inspired by God, writings that have been breathed out by God. And so, at this time when this was written um, in the book of Second Timothy, remember that was about 57 A.D., there, there wasn't very much New Testament Scripture written. And so Paul is primarily speaking here about the Old Testament Scriptures. Um, the Old Testament Scriptures. And they are breathed out by God, or some translations say inspired by God. But it's really nothing to do with with breathing in you know when we when we inspire that's kind of when we breathe in but really the idea of this word is that it's something that is breathed out that it's the the product bb warfield says it's the product of the, of divine um breathing it's breathed out by god the product of the creative breath of god end quote and so that's kind of the idea of this word that it it really comes from god and so um and, and because it comes from God, the scriptures are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And so that's, that's kind of the idea of, of what we're talking about when we're talking about inspiration. Again, the source of scripture is from God. And so then let's go through and let's just kind of talk about this um, what time are we supposed to end this thing? Is it like 8.30? Is that what we said? So, Ivan's like, right now, it's bedtime. Um, does anyone, is it 8, 8.30? Is that, does that sound about right? So nobody wants, okay, Matt, Kevin's, thank you, Kevin. Nobody else wants to say. Um, okay, let, so let's keep going here. Let's, let's talk about what, we're, what I called here the biblical theme of inspiration. And we're just going to kind of trace this through, starting in the Old Testament. And um, even starting in the very beginning in the Old Testament, we've got, at times in Scripture, we've got direct speech from God. T- tell me, in a, give me an example of t- a time in the Old Testament when God spoke something directly. Yeah, burning bush to Moses. So there's the words of God. Um, perfect. Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham, and that's recorded in Scripture. Or Exodus chapter 20, that would be the, the Ten Commandments given directly from God. And so at times the Old Testament re- reports direct speech from God to people. Um, one of the examples was in that burning bush narrative. There's actually quite a bit that God says there in Exodus 3 and 4. Um, then the Old Testament reports prophetic speech, uh, words God's words spoken by human beings. And the prophets, really beginning with Moses, are, are viewed as God's 
authoritative messengers, right? And so when, when Moses spoke to the people, they understood that God was speaking to them. And, uh, and, and of course that was, was proven and shown by all the miracles that, that Moses did. And so, um, very often in the Old Testament, we see things like, thus says the Lord. And so the prophets say, thus says the Lord, and then they give what the Lord says. Um, very often, there's also a, a conclusion. And so if you go to the book of Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel will say a huge section, and then he'll say, declares the Lord. And so the prophets um, are viewed as these authoritative messengers, often giving the very words of the Lord. And, uh, and, the, and, and again, it's, it's the very words of God that they speak, not just the thoughts, not just general thoughts, but even the words themselves. And, and that's the idea of that word prophet. When, when somebody was a prophet, they were somebody who was, was God's mouthpiece. That's the kind of root idea of that word. And so we have, for example, early on in the book of Exodus, the Lord saying to Moses, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say, Exodus 4.12. Often as well in the Old Testament, the prophets would speak for God in the first person. And so in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 13, uh, suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so very often the prophets would even speak for God in the first person saying, I, um, you know, putting, putting words in God's mouth that came from God. Uh, and then the Old Testament, so that's, that's kind of reports of, reports of prophetic speech. But then also in the Old Testament, we have written words from God. And so, you know, for example, the, the Ten Commandments written, um, God told Moses in Exodus 17, 14, write for, for, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua and I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And uh, God told Jeremiah as well to, to write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. And so God told Moses to write and God also told these prophets to write. And then in the New Testament, as they look back on the Old Testament, and I think that's one of the, the, the easiest ways for us to kind of affirm Scripture, is to kind of see how the New Testament, see especially how the Lord Jesus viewed Scripture. But in the, the New Testament, they look at the Old Testament writings and, and they think of them as the words of God. And so Matthew one twenty two says, So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, through the prophet saying, and then Matthew goes on to say what, what was, what was quoted in the Old Testament. But it was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So the Old Testament, the New Testament authors look back at the Old Testament as the word of God. And, uh, and this is right down, and this is important here, this is right down to the very words that were used. And so in Matthew 22, 44 and 45, Jesus proves that David calls the Messiah Lord, and he just goes to Psalm 110.1 and, and, and sees that word Lord there, and so that, and, and to him that kind of settles all disputes. 
Uh, even minor details of the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Christ, right down to the place where he was born. Micah 5.2, he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And uh, minor details of the Old Testament are treated as trustworthy and reliable. And so you have Jesus saying in Matthew 12.3, but have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him and how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread and which wasn't lawful for him to eat. And so Jesus looks at those Old Testament minor details about David going into the temple and, and eating some bread and he, he counts on them as reliable. Uh, Jesus even says in Luke 24, 25 to 27, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I think that verse was in your homework. And so Jesus looks at what the prophets had written and he expects it all to be fulfilled. Uh, in the New Testament as well, the, the, it's the Word of God. The New Testament records direct speech from God um, at the baptism of Christ and the transfiguration. God speaks from heaven and the scripture records it there. New Testament records God's speech through Christ and his apostles. And so, of course, we see what, what Christ said and uh, what the apostles said in the book of Acts. Um, for the Lord, and this is, this is the part that I think is really helpful, and maybe we should go to some of these scriptures here. Let's go to, um, I didn't put them in the slideshow for you, but let's go to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, starting in verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And so for Jesus, we can see from, from these, him, him using the scripture both of these times here that the, the scripture is the final authority on anything. And it was necessary for the scripture to be fulfilled. And to see that, let's go to Matthew 26 and verse, look at verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And so it's, it's some, it has to be fulfilled because it was written that way. And we could go to a lot of scriptures like that that show that. Um, the Lord assumes the truth of Old Testament miracles in Luke chapter 4, 27. He speaks about the burning bush. Um, or no, he doesn't. Let's see what he speaks about in Luke four twenty seven. Luke 
Luke 4, 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And so the Lord assumes the truth of the, the cleansing of Naaman the Syrian, but also he assumes the truth of the burning bush, the destruction of Sodom, the manna that the Israelites ate, that Jonah was was swallowed by a fish. All of these things the Lord believes are true. And um, and they don't see a distinction. We don't see a distinction in value among the various parts of the Old Testament. And so Luke in Luke 25 Luke 24, 25 to 27, what we just read, um, the Lord says that what was written in Moses and all the prophets needs to be fulfilled. And so really all of Scripture, the Lord gives equal weight to. And then when it comes to the writing of the New Testament, we can kind of tie this to the Lord as well because He is the one who promised that the apostles would write further Scripture and that the Holy Spirit would come on them and that they would remember the things that He had spoken to them. And so there's this promise that, that's kind of tied to the Lord Jesus that the New Testament would also be written. And so we can see from kind of from this kind of chain that the Lord Jesus believed the Old Testament and He promised the New Testament and we really see no difference as we go through the New Testament. We, we get this sense that the apostles recognized that they spoke the Word of God. Um, so let's go to... Yeah, I think a good, a good place to see that is... Um, let's go to 2 Peter 3.15. Let's start there. Peter's writing and he says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he done, does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so here we have Peter affirming that our beloved brother Paul also wrote scriptures and uh, and that there was some things in them that's hard to understand and it's ignorant and unstable people who twist those things to their own destruction. But there we have Peter acknowledging that uh, that Paul's writings are scripture. Let's do let's do one more here. Let's go to um, 1 Timothy 5.18. 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5.18. It says there, For the Scripture says, Paul's writing this obviously, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So the one, uh, I believe, comes from uh, Deuteronomy. Let's see here. 1 Timothy 5, cited from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, is the thing about the ox and treading out the grain. 
um, the laborer is worthy of his wages, that comes from the book of Luke. And so Paul is recognizing Old Testament Deuteronomy is, is scripture as much as the book of Luke is scripture. And so the laborer is worthy of his wages. That comes from Luke 10 and verse 7. Now the apostles also looked at their own writings as from God. And so you see things like this in the New Testament. First, go to 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, we also thank God concerning this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is also at work in you believers. And so Paul looks at the the word that he spoke to the Thessalonians as the word of God. And so there's this kind of connection that there's this promise to the apostles that they're going to write scripture, and then that's fulfilled as Peter and Paul and John all write scripture. And then there's a few other prophets in the New Testament time that, that weren't apostles. Of course, Paul was one of them, but Luke and Jude and James and the author of Hebrews, if it wasn't Paul, these men were also prophets in the early church who weren't part of the 12. And yet they wrote um, God's word as well. They prophesied, they spoke the word of God. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the church came to recognize that their writings were the word of God as well. And so, um, and, and most of those guys, you know, like Paul or, um, or Luke or Jude or James, they, they had this, or, or the, um, Mark, those men had connections to the other apostles who could recognize their writing as scripture. And so that kind of just, that's just really brief, but it just kind of shows us that, that the, the authors of scripture recognized that they were writing the word of God. And that's really what, what scripture is. The word of God. This is from our, uh, our, what we teach in our church statement of faith. It says, we teach the, that the Bible's, that the Bible is God's written revelation to man. And thus the 66, six books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary, inspired in all parts, is the idea of plenary, Word of God. We teach that the Word of God is an objective, propositional revelation, verbally inspired in every word, absolutely inerrant in the original documents, infallible, and God-breathed. And so the idea here is that Scripture is inspired by God, that all of the words are God's words and that it's there in an objective. It's, it's not, it's not subjective. It's right there in the words. The meaning is in the statements, the propositional statements, the, the statements of fact that are given and that every word is inspired by God and therefore profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness. And so that's, that's right from our statement of faith. But the, the, um, the inspiration of Bible kind of, the inspiration of the Bible leads us to another thing, and that is the authority of the Bible. The authority of the Bible. I thought I had a question here. Um, yeah, let's just, let's do that. If, if the Bible is from God, 
What does that tell us about its authority? What would you say about the authority of the Bible if it's from, it's from God? It's the ultimate authority. Good. Okay. The ultimate authority. And, and why would you say that? Why, and, and anyone could answer that. Why is it, if it's from God, it, one of us says it's the ultimate authority. Why, why does, why does that hold true? Because it's God, right? Yeah, good, good. Because if, you know, God has authority, right? God is over this creation. God is over this world. And so if the Bible really is from God, then it's His words to us and it, it carries His authority. And so as we kind of think about the authority of the Bible, there's kind of a, a logical flow that we can, we can go through. First of all, the Bible claims divine authority. It claims to be the very word of God. And, and then what happens is now we need to be convinced of that. And, and the way that we're convinced of that is, is by the work of the Holy Spirit as we read scripture. So as we read scripture, which claims divine authority, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to save us and to show us that the, the Bible is the word of God. And so we become convinced of the Bible's authority as the Word of God works in our lives in our salvation. Now, other evidence is useful, but it's, it's not ultimately convincing. And I, I think I've got a couple of quotes here. Let's talk, let's go to Wayne Grudem first in his Bible doctrine. Uh, he says, it is helpful for us to learn that the Bible is historically accurate, that it is eternally consistent, internally consistent, that it contains prophecy that have been fulfilled filled hundreds of years later, that it has influenced the course of human history more than any other book, that it has continued changing lives of millions of individuals throughout its history, that through it people come to find salvation, and that it, that it has a majestic beauty and a profound depth of teaching unmatched by any other book, and that it claims hundreds of times over to be God's very words. So Grudem acknowledges that, that those things are all helpful but ultimately, they're not convincing. And to kind of see that even more, let's go to the Westminster Confession of Faith. They say a very similar thing. They say, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. But then they say, yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts." And so we, we come to be convinced of the authority of the Bible by the work of the Holy Spirit through the Scripture. And other evidence is useful, but it's, it's not finally convincing. It, it, it encourages us to see all those things, but ultimately it's got to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And the reason for this is because the Scriptures, as an ultimate authority, are self-attesting. 
And what, what we mean by that is that if something's an ultimate authority, if this is really the word of God, I can't go somewhere else to show that it's authoritative because as soon as I go somewhere else, I'm saying that other thing is more authoritative and, and shows me this. And so all things that are ultimate authorities uh, need to be self-attesting. And that's the way the Word of God is. Now, some people might say, well, that's kind of a circular argument. But, but really, it's the outside work of the Holy Spirit that, that finally convinces us that makes it not a circular thing. And, and I'm not going to go too deep into that right now tonight. Um, but if we kind of follow this, this line that the Bible claims divine authority, that we've come to accept that authority, that it's the Word of God, that the Scriptures have, are, are an ultimate authority and then self-attesting to us, we come to the conclusion then that if we disobey Scripture, we disobey God. And that's really important for us to, to recognize. If we disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture, we disbelieve or disobey God. And, uh, and, and we really need to see that. And, and that's really just what, what flows out naturally if the Bible is the Word of God. If this is inspired by God, if this is ultimately from Him, if the source of it is His, is from Him, then we need to recognize His authority in the words of Scripture. Now, let's talk quickly, and, and we, I think we can do this in the next 10 minutes. Um, the next part about Scripture that we want to talk about here, so the Bible is inspired by God, it's breathed out by God, it's authoritative because God is an authority, and now we come to the doctrine and, and we say that the Bible is inerrant. If everything we've said so far is true, then the Bible is without error. And so there's kind of a, a logical syllogism here, that starts with with this statement, the Bible is God's Word. The Bible is God's Word. And we've already kind of looked at that, and I've got even more notes about that, but we're going to kind of skip over that. If the Bible is the Word of God, and we know about God that God is a God of truth, and we can say that positively or negatively, we can say positively that, that God is truth. Um... Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, He is a rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are justice, a God of truth. And without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Um, David says, uh, Psalm 31 verse 5, O Lord God of truth. Um, God is a God of truth. Uh, 2 Samuel 7.28 you are God and your words are true. And Jesus said in John 17, 17, your word is truth. And so God is a God of truth. And, and as a God of truth, he is incapable of error. And we could say it negatively as well. Scripture does, at times it says that it's impossible for God to lie. Numbers twenty three nineteen: God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Or Titus 1 and verse, uh, actually that should say 2 in right here. Um, Titus 1, Titus 1, 2. He is a God, or it says, 
Yeah, God who cannot lie. Or in, in Hebrews 6 and verse 1, it is impossible for God to lie. And so God is a God of truth. It's impossible for him to lie. And he's also a God who knows all things, which kind of adds into this as well. God knows everything. There's nothing secret or hidden from him. He is perfect in knowledge. He knows all things, past, present, and future. And so it's not like he he would try to say something true, but he wouldn't know exactly how something's going to happen. And so he he can't lie. He always speaks the truth. He knows everything. And that means that that he is incapable of error. When we put all of those things together, God cannot err. And so the, the, the Bible is ultimately God's word, not man's word, not the prophet's word. God is a God of truth who cannot err. And so therefore, the scripture is true and incapable of error. And so it's impossible for there to, for God to make an error because these are ultimately his words, not, not human words. And so the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, Article 11 says, We affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that so far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. It's infallible. It's, it's not capable of erring. That's the idea of that word. Not, it's not capable of erring. Uh, John Feinberg, in his article in the book Inerrancy, says, quote, Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. So the scripture... When all the facts are known and properly interpreted, the original autographs are going to be wholly true in everything they affirm in really in every area. That's what we're talking about when we talk about inerrancy. Um, and actually, that that is, I think, I believe that's the end of my notes. Um, I just read that and that. So historical... Yeah, so um, so there we go. That's that's kind of our, our time together for this evening. We talked about just kind of a brief overview of Scripture, kind of looking at the New Testament. What's there? What's it about? What are the what's the purpose and dating of these books? Then we looked at the inspiration of Scripture. Scripture is inspired by God. Because of that, it's authoritative. It comes with God's authority, and it's it's inerrant. There's no errors in Scripture because ultimately, again, it's from God. And so this hopefully kind of gives us a, a really good sense of what we're dealing with in the Bible. And I, I hope it kind of explains. That's why we, we try to carefully preach and interpret the Bible week after week, Sunday after Sunday, because we know that if Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for us to train us, to equip us so that we can be men and women of God, then we need to understand what it says and we need to look into it and we need to kind of recognize it as our authority, the thing that we are to submit our lives to because God is our authority and we're to submit our lives to him. And when we submit our lives to his word, we're submitting to him. And he's not going to lead us astray because, again, it's ultimately God's word, not the words 
of the prophets who wrote those. Now, next time we come, we're going to kind of dig deep into what they call canonicity, and we're going to try to understand why are these books the books of the Bible, and why are not why are there not other books, or should there be some other books in our Bible? Um, kind of spoil it for you. There shouldn't, but uh, we'll we'll talk about why we believe that uh, next time. But let's let's pray, Father. We we thank you again just for this ability to look at your word. And we pray that this wouldn't just be information for us, but it really would shape and affect our lives. Um, Father, we want to be people of your word. We want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ according to the word. And, uh, and so we thank you for our opportunity and the privilege that we have to learn these things. In Jesus' name, amen.